Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 80, and the second and final episode covering the testimony of John Ebersol, MD, who was the radiologist that night at Bethesda. You can listen to part one of this two-part series related to Ebersol at episode 78. Episode 79 was my Christmas wish for you. I'm sorry that this episode 80 wasn't out earlier, but I suffered a massive crash of one of my hard drives. It was more than a distraction over the last several days, and I'm sorry to say that I lost a considerable amount of JFK assassination research material, material that was set to be used on upcoming episodes. But I guess where there is a will, there will be a way. The last five or six episodes on the autopsy have been all about the x-rays. And maybe, really more than just that, really all about the people who were there and took and interpreted those x-rays and what they really saw and what they really concluded and said about what happened. And finally, what they really knew about the goings-on that night. Between Gerald Custer and John Ebersaw, well, it's been a lot to take in. At the very end of episode 78, you heard a bombshell. John Ebersaw was faced with the seminal question of this whole conspiracy. Any forensic conclusion that a shot came from somewhere other than above and behind the president would mean a second gunman, and thus a conspiracy. So, on the basis of the radiology exams, he was asked point blank under oath at the HSCA hearings as to whether Ebersaw had an opinion on the point of entrance of that fatal shot or shots. Was the point of entrance on the head somewhere on the back of the head, or was it somewhere else, some other part of the head? Of all the questioning, of all the minutia covered, the panel actually had the presence of mind to get out from under all the details, to get above them, and ask the seminal question that, at the end of the day, the autopsy really needed to answer. What did the forensic evidence say about the direction of the shots. At that defining moment, after a long pause, Ebersaw revealed that, in his opinion, the fatal bullet that had hit the president in the head had entered the head from the side. And after revealing that fact, he was clear to say that he did not want to say anything more than that. Say nothing more about it. Well, imagine that. He was truly the fourth M.D. actively participating in the autopsy that night in his official capacity as the radiologist of record. Based on what he observed that night, based on all the x-rays that were taken and ultimately analyzed, his opinion was that the entry wound was on the side of the president's head and thus did not enter from the rear. Well, as you can imagine, the HSCA panel that he was testifying before was more than interested in this revelation, this bombshell, really. And it was most definitely a hot potato. It was more than just controversial. The HSCA panel did manage to ask some relevant follow-up questions, and Dr. Ebersol did manage to provide some additional detail to this testimony as a result. 
you'll hear those comments and the additional details during today's episode. And we'll start off with a repeat of that bombshell comment since it came at the very end of episode 78. And listening to it again, we'll put the remainder of Ebersol's comments on the topic into context. We've retained the same presentation format for this episode as we used in episode 78. I've heavily edited the rest of Ebersol's testimony so that we could fit it into this one final episode on Ebersol. And I have periodically stopped the recording and made comments either in advance or immediately after comments that Ebersol makes. The HSCA questioning was done by a rather large panel of experts that day. It was an inquiry that most of the experts on the HSCA medical panel wanted to participate in because, after all, they all knew the significance of Ebersol's involvement and the importance of the x-rays in solving the crime. That resulted in random questioning by various panel members that occurred throughout the proceeding and that sometimes resulted in a disjointed discussion as Dr. Ebersol would be faced with a clarifying question on a topic already covered, and after they had moved on to something else. So, to minimize the impact of this roaming by the questioners, I have organized the retained audio clips in what I will call about five major categories, grouped together so that we can hear the major conversation that went on about each of these topics in a more cohesive manner. The categories are, first, a continuation and conclusion related to the headshot. Second, a general discussion related to a few more critical facts around the x-rays themselves. Third, a more thorough discussion about the throat wound and its eventual connection to the back wound, including Ebersol's admission that one x-ray does show bullet fragments in the back that are down and around C7 which is a spot on the spine, which is much too low, if it was the point of entrance on the back for the through-and-through bullet hole. Much too low to be lined up with the throat wound. Fourth, a discussion around speculation that there was control over the autopsy that night by individuals other than the pathologists who were performing the autopsy. After that, we explore a few audio exchanges related to the competency and expertise of Dr. Ebersol himself as it relates to his interpretive experience in radiology, his work with gunshot wounds, and finally his overall competency in radiology as it related to the work he was doing that night at Bethesda. The good doctor himself makes comment on his capabilities as he answers a few important questions on the topic. And finally, we address Ebersol as a reluctant witness and reveal, as we said we would in episode 78, why he ultimately decided to testify after first resisting requests to come before the HSCA medical review panel. I did my best to take an approach to the formatting of this episode that would not eliminate or eviscerate the meaning or context of these five general conversations. but. Some of the comments are out of the natural order in which they occurred, and so arguably listening this way is ultimately no substitute for listening to the whole conversation as it occurred. That is, if you are a purist. And if you are, then go to the original recordings, which can be found on our website at www.podcastjfk.com under episode 80, or at 
history-matters.com and listen to them all in their totality. If you have time, that is a great thing to do. But if you don't, I think the way that we have them organized today makes this episode more meaningful and interesting for most listeners. So, without further ado, let's listen to episode 80 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. What you are about to hear is so fantastic that it requires no introduction. But what it does require you to do is to listen very carefully. This was a man who was faced with one of those important questions. This was also a man who hadn't told the entire truth throughout the course of this testimony. And yet, in many ways, how he answers this next question is more than a bit of redemption. I think for Ebersaw, this really was his moment of truth. So let's listen to it. Do you, uh, on uh, examination of these films, uh, have an opinion as to where uh, the gunshot wound of entrance was in the head, radiologically? The direction of the headshot is perhaps the most important determination that could be made in all of the autopsy proceedings. You just heard a replay of the bombshell comment made by Eversall in episode 78. And next, let's hear a few exchanges between Ebersol and the panel that came afterward regarding the headshot. And special attention to Ebersol's clarifying comment that he believes the headshot entered somewhere in the front right quadrant, not just perhaps on the side. And he says that on the basis of the x-rays, clearly a conclusion that supports an entry wound coming from somewhere as far right of the president as the position of the grassy knoll or a shot coming from more directly in the front of the president and entering on the right front. His visual recollection was also supplemented ultimately in this section of the testimony by two particular photographs from the autopsy collection. He would ultimately conclude that the position of the president's head wound was more lateral and more superior. What happens next is a rather clumsy exchange with Ebersol defending his overall capabilities and expertise given that it was a limited-scope mission, a mission to find a bullet, and that such a limited-scope mission was well within his expertise. He was a radiologist who had just recently completed his boards, but didn't yet have a lot of diagnostic radiology experience, experiencing classic radiology practice. 
After all, his primary love and training was in the nuclear science of things. But still, he was qualified to do this simple set of radiological exams and to perform this simple radiological exercise. And Michael Bodden, who was head of the panel, immediately sensed the ramifications associated with Ebersol's answer. And so he attempted to help Dr. Ebersol by filling in the logical next set of responses by Ebersol. And the whole fill-in-the-blank narrative was just that. They would struggle to fill in the blank and state that at the time of the autopsy, Ebersol was not asked to evaluate, nor did he give an opinion on where, uh, radiologically that is, the entrance wound or exit wounds were. Now, why Humes, Boswell, and Fink would not have solicited his input on that topic is odd in and of itself. Oddly enough, Bodden's defense of Ebersol, that he was not asked to give an opinion, and that is why the record is devoid of one, well, it makes the whole circumstance that much more problematic. One more fact pointing to the suppression of the true facts in the case. There is just no reason for the radiologist in this case to not have been engaged during the process to give an opinion for the record about the path of the bullets. No good reason at all why this was not done. Uh, as far as my expertise that night, I don't think it should be questioned because what was being asked of my expertise was, is there a slug in the body? Uh, I understand that. Yes, well, I'm, I'm coming back to your expertise now. now looking at those skull films, uh, you feel comfortable in saying there were fractures there. Uh, and yet I understood you to say that, I think, wouldn't you? Uh, and yet I understood you to say that you felt like uh, there had been a bullet wound on the right side of the head. Is, is that correct? No, I would say on the basis of those x-rays and x-rays only. Uh, well, one might say that one would uh, have to estimate there that the wound of entrance was somewhere to the side or to the the posterior quadrant. Inside or the posterior This is 180 degrees. Okay. Okay, fine. That's, that's all I I take it also from your initial responses to, uh, pursuant to Dr. Weston's comment just a few minutes ago, uh, to the evaluation of the uh, injury to the head, that you had not evaluated the skull films for points of entrance or entry at the time of the autopsy or subsequently. That's correct. And that you were hesitant to, uh, to give us a... Um, an opinion yes. as to entrance, and I'm also bringing up e exit now, uh, from your background, training, and expertise. That's correct. When you compare those two photographs, what inference do you draw now about the nature of the wound, nature of the gaping wound to the president's head in terms of where it was located? Earlier you said it was in the back of the head. Looking at these two views, how would you characterize the location of that case of wound? More lateral. That's more lateral and superior than the other Did you have the opportunity to see the head in the view as evidenced by color photograph number 42 showing the back of the head? No, I would have been more familiar with this, this aspect in uh, positioning the head for the, the x-rays. 
mean, this, this requires a forward effort to, to show this portion of the head on the part of the prospector, right? Did you have the opportunity? You, you, you stated you had a better opportunity to, to see the view of number 32. Did you have the opportunity to see the view of number 42 showing the back of the head? Well, assuming that that was done while I was there, yes, I had the opportunity. Is there a point in that photograph on the head which you take to be a bullet wound? Uh, sorry. On number 42. 42. Visual recollection is more of a gaping occipital wound on this, but I certainly can't uh, say that this wasn't the way it was. Again, we're relying on a 15-year-old uh, recollection. But had you asked me without seeing these or seeing the pictures, you know, I would have put the gaping wound is here rather than up or more forward. What inference do you draw now about the nature of the wound, nature of the gaping wound to the president's head in terms of where it was located? Earlier you said it was in the back of the head. Looking at these two views, how would you characterize the location of that gaping wound? More lateral. That's more lateral and superior than the wound. Okay, it's time now to pivot away from the headshot and begin our discussion generally about some of the aspects related to the taking of the x-rays themselves. We start by hearing Ebersol reiterate that there was one simple and singular purpose for taking the x-rays that night, and that was to find evidence of a bullet and retrieve that bullet. And that was all. It was nothing more than that. That was the one reason why they were there and why they were so intent on simply taking the x-rays in the morgue itself using a portable x-ray machine that night. Rather than taking JFK's body to the x-ray department and using more sophisticated fixed-plane radiological equipment that was available there. Ebersol explains that he wasn't being pressed into service to do the kind of forensic review that would reveal anything more than the existence of a bullet a bullet that could be tied to the gun that they had retrieved already from the Texas School Book Depository and that had allegedly been the gun used in the crime, a crime that was allegedly perpetrated by one Lee Harvey Oswald. That was it. There was no objective to determine the trajectory of the bullets, to determine what all the forensic evidence had to say once revealed. Indeed, there was no objective to find or reveal that evidence at all, any of that at least not when it came to applying the science of radiology. The rest of the exchange in this section is, well, basically self-explanatory, although I will punctuate one thing. Ebersol made it a point of saying that had they had a wound of entry and a wound of exit, that he would have stayed on the sidelines. He would have never been pressed into service to take x-rays had they found both a wound of entry and an exit wound. Can you imagine... They actually contemplated no radiological analysis at all if they had just found the bullet, or at least a wound of entry and a wound of exit, <laughs> whatever that apparently might have proven. I'm not really sure. 
As the detailed review of the x-rays concludes, they finally are able to agree on one thing, that there were 14 x-rays in total in the current inventory at the National Archives. At least they could agree on the number in existence in the archive, even if they couldn't ascertain or agree on the true number of x-rays actually taken that night. And uh, the purposes you stated of taking these x-rays was entirely to make sure a uh, bullet had, was not being overlooked? That's correct. But the, all x-rays, with the exception of fragments, were taken fairly early in the evening. Now, number one, uh, you haven't seen these for a while. When was the no. last time you saw these? Last time I saw these, and then it was not uh, nice view box, but this was here in this building when we put them in the archives. What was that, 1966? Uh, wet. Dr. Ebersole, um, hypothesize with me for a moment, please. That uh, if on the autopsy um, evening, Dr. Humes or, or any of the other physicians or people present had not received information at that time that there had been a bullet entrance wound in the front of the neck, that no such information was known by anybody on that evening, what would be your professional opinion as a radiologist? What would it have been at that time concerning the um, need or desirability for taking additional x-ray pictures? No, I think we would have had to. Uh, I'd like to try to keep retrospective thinking out of this, but it's difficult. I think had we not had that information eventually, I would have wanted to take the body to the main x-ray department and do a, an honest-to-God total body radiograph. As I suppose it's remotely possible that a bullet entering the back can end up in the ankle, but uh, again, in your hypothetical case, I think this is what we would have done. Well, whose decision was it to take portable x-rays rather than have the body initially brought to the main x-ray room? I think it was probably a joint decision between myself and Dr. Hughes. Did you consider bringing the body first? Oh, sir, I did not. Had you taken x-rays in the autopsy room before? I have not, no. Okay. I had x-ray bodies in the department. In the department, but not in the autopsy what kind of x-ray, uh, portable x-ray, did you have? The one that's usually used for uh, live patients? Yeah, as, knowing the equipment we had because at that time, it was either a thicker or a general electric portable machine. And of 1963 vintage, we have much to be desired in terms of was it, uh, x-ray uh, detail. Again, not to belabor the point, uh, did you just sort of, did you in any way feel it would be inappropriate to ask to have the president's body wheeled down to the x-ray room, uh, or was that not really part of your thinking? That wasn't really part of my thinking. When you left at 3 in the morning, do you remember Dr. Humes, Dr. Boswell was still there? They were still there, yes. And you remember what they were doing? I believe this was closure. I asked Dr. Yeah. Lewis if it was all right for me to leave. Were they closing, or well, normally, um, was he a funeral director there? Not to my knowledge.
do you do you have any uh, impression or recollections at the initial decision-making process of what to do prior to you being asked to take the x-ray? If there were an exit perforation apparent as to whether or not you would have taken any x-rays. I, I, I don't know. You, you may not have. You may not have. Do you have any impression as to whether or not this would have influenced the extent that the autopsy uh, would have been done? The extent of the autopsy? Uh, no, I don't. Was there discussion, perhaps, or any impression that if there were an obvious wound of exit, uh, that perhaps uh, an autopsy would not be uh, necessary? No, sir, that was not mentioned. Your impression? My impression is we would, had we had a wound of exit, we would have proceeded with an autopsy in usual fashion, and I would have stayed in my corner all night. And as we look at each of these x-rays, implicit in your discussion of the x-rays is that these are the x-rays that you took uh, at the time of the autopsy and that you later labeled and put into the archives. Yes. If you, have you seen anything that would suggest uh, any alteration of the x-rays um, in any way, shape, or form as you have viewed them? Apart from the artifacts, uh, the heat artifacts you had discussed on the uh, skull X-ray. No, apart from the the heat artifact, uh, no. As an interesting aside, that a question been raised on number eight. There is a, a normal hospital marking that you use yeah. to identify each X-ray. Is that correct? With the number. On it, uh, 21296 U.S. Naval, Naval Hospital. Correct. Uh, and that is present on all, is that the same uh, label you used on all the x-rays? Yes. Yeah. That isn't present on number 10. 10. Unless you don't have a hotline. No, but uh, uh, we inspect that yeah, too. It's, it's not present. It's not there. Uh, do you recall what might have happened? So, uh, uh, the technician may have forgotten to affix the marker to the cassette. It may have been placed outside of the beam on the cassette so that it doesn't show. But you are, set, are, are you satisfied that this is indeed an x-ray that you took at the time you took, uh, in the same time period you took the other x-rays? Yes, sir. We've now reviewed all of the x-rays that we have, and these are all, to your knowledge, that were taken. You've no, stated. Yes. There were some 14? 14 different x-rays, three of bone fragments. Now, let's pivot to more comments that Ebersol made about the throat wound. He would describe that Humes would probe the wound and indicate that he found it to extend, perhaps, over the apex of the right lung, bruising the pleura and appeared to go toward the midline of the lower neck. It was something that Ebersol remembers Humes pointing out during the course of the autopsy. Ebersol would also unequivocally say that by 10 or 10.30 that night, approximately, that a communication had been established with Dallas, and it was learned that there had been a wound of exit in the lower neck that had been surgically repaired. 
in that he wasn't sure if it was pre- or post-mortem. It was at that point that the radiological involvement in the review ceased, at least according to his account of it. This is especially important as it essentially established Humes as lying about what was known that night by Humes and completely dishevels the reasoning and the story of how the thinking evolved the next morning regarding the autopsy. As you recall, Commander Humes would later tell the story that that night at Bethesda, during the autopsy, he was unaware of a throat wound, and that later became the primary basis for why he did not section the shoulder and do the more comprehensive autopsy procedures that otherwise would have been performed and otherwise were needed to confirm that the bullet had entered the back and then exited through the front neck. Without that procedure, as we are reminded again, there was no definitive conclusion. Remember, at the time, Dr. Humes surmised, or so he says, that possibly a bullet had entered the back of the president and then had come out as a result of cardiac massage. Ebersol also denies hearing anything about the idea that a bullet might have dropped out of the president's back. Of course, that is an assertion that is so well documented in the Seibert and O'Neill report, and that is an incredibly opposing fact pattern. Just one more huge discrepancy in what all these professionals were saying went on that night and what was known that night. Ebersaw also does not recall that the probing of the back wound resulted in an initial conclusion that the wound itself was not deep and that it terminated with no traverse to the other side. Ebersaw was really in a tough spot. He could not have testified that this kind of discussion had gone on because he had already testified that Humes showed a probe process that extended through the body over the lung. If that were true, the two courses of dialogue were in complete contradiction with one another. The autopsy proceeded. And at this point, I'm simply an observer. Uh, Dr. Humes, probing the wound of entrance, found it to extend uh, perhaps over the apex of the right lung, bruising the pleura, and appeared to go toward the, or near the midline of the lower neck. I believe by 10 or 10.30, Approximately, a communication had been established with Dallas, and it was learned that there had been a wound of exit in the lower neck, but had been surgically repaired. I don't know if this was pre-mortem or post-mortem, but at that point, the confusion, as far as we were concerned, stopped. But one of the one of the factors would be of, of some uh, interest to us is that your x-ray taken, taking may have been related to an initial concern that had been expressed and that you remember being expressed of the back bullet entering and then dropping out in Dallas. Correct? No. Well, I'm sorry. 
But my when the, uh, yes, my initial impression is that we have a wound of entrance, and we do not have a wound of exit. And I don't remember any conversation about a bullet dropping out. Oh, I'm sorry, could you indicate? I don't, I don't remember any conversation. Do, do you remember a conversation when the when the this back wound was probed that it appeared to end? No, in the back. I don't remember any conversation. Okay, any, uh, Before you leave that, can I ask you sure. a question? Uh, I, I'm not clear of the chronology. Uh, you, when you first started talking, you gave the impression that everybody had the impression that there was a bullet hole in the back of the neck fairly early in the inspection. In other words, you, you gave me the impression they rolled the body over almost immediately. Is, is that a correct impression? I don't know if we look at the anterior or posterior aspect first. Um, I suspect it was posterior. posterior Gaping head wound and a wound of entrance. They, they saw the wound of entrance on yes. the back of, back of the neck almost immediately. I believe so, yes. Now, this, again, is a question of recollection as to whether we look at the anterior posterior surface first. Uh, yes, but she said that they didn't recognize this as being an exit wound uh, until after the conversation with Dallas, which was 10 or 10.30. Or later. By, by that time, you had already uh, taken two No, steps. no, no. Oh. When, the, when the both aspects of the body had been viewed, and I do not know in what order they were viewed, uh, we were faced with a problem of a wound of entrance. And, not, and no, no one wouldn't have exit. So at that point, and we perhaps would never have taken any x-rays had we had a wound of entrance and a wound of exit. You didn't Remember, I'm standing by waiting for the prosector to start with my x-ray equipment. We certainly had not, at least to my knowledge, had we planned to take any x-rays at this autopsy. But when it became apparent we had a wound of entrance and no, no one wouldn't have exit, this is when I was brought into the action. When no, I, I, I chronologically, though, relative to when the body was first undressed uh, in its bed. My recollection was that we took most of these pictures before the autopsy had started, but obviously uh, the films show that my recollection is not very good in that respect. Okay. And I would have to state that there must have been quite a time gap between the first films and the later ones that show the viscera removed. Three later ones. There were three later ones. The uh, taking of the x-rays, again, uh, were stopped to the best of my remembrance. Once we had communication with Dallas, and Dr. Humes had determined that there was a wounded exit in the lower neck anteriorly at the time that the president arrived in, in, at the hospital in Dallas. I think once that fact had been established, that my part in the proceedings were, were finished. May I ask... Two questions further. One, did you see the wound in the neck and associate it with a bullet wound of exit after it had been pointed out that the tracheostomy had been through that area? No, sir, I can't say that I did. I, I saw, after the dissection had started, I saw the um, area that Dr. Humes was very interested in. He pointed out to us that this was a 
a tract running over the apex of the lung. I think he used the term bruising the apex of the lung and uh, pointing toward the midline. I remember he, the area was open and he was pointing this out to us. Uh, I can't recollect if I saw this area again after that information was known to him. One other question I have has to do with the nature of the information you received from other sources yeah. on the night of the autopsy. You mentioned a phone call which helped clear up confusion. Somewhere in the course of the evening, Dr. Hume received information from Dallas Ray. The procedures that had been carried out there. And number one. Number two, somewhere in the course of the evening, Dallas sent to us the bony fragments you saw, which were x-rayed, as to how this was carried out, the mechanics, I don't know. Uh, somewhere in the course of the autopsy, Dr. Hughes was made aware of the, the surgical uh, procedures at Dallas, vis-a-vis -vis the neck. And what was that information? Information that there had been a wound of exit there, a tracheostomy done, and a suturing. Do you recall how that information was conveyed? To I, I don't. I don't. Do you have an independent recollection whether the neck organs were examined in the course of the autopsies, referring specifically to the trachea and blood vessels in that area and larynx? No. My, my memory is very vivid for seeing the, a, a bruise in the right apex uh, of the visceral pleura to service the right lung, but I, I was not close enough or was away on one of these x-ray runs when that area was examined, the, the trachea specifically. So when you say no, you don't have, no means you do not have a recollection no, or no, it was not done? Uh, I do not have a recollection. In response to Dr. Petty's question, response to Dr. Petty's question, you said the area was laid open. Now, do you mean that they ran an incision from the point of entrance across the shoulder to demonstrate looking down in a superior fashion into the apex of the lung, or are you really meaning that the lung was taken out and you were looking at into the apex? Again, I have to rely on a 53-year-old memory and a 13-15-year-old event. But as I remember, I was looking from the anterior aspect into the chest after the viscera had been removed and a probe had been passed from the wound of entrance and one could see the, the bruising of the parietal pleura uh, from below. at that point. From below, from, from below, below and front. Yeah. From below, by looking up. I just want to clarify the record. You know, I, I, I appreciate that you know, it's been uh, many, many years uh, but uh, my, my understanding of the sequence of events was somewhat different uh, than what you said, and, and I want to refresh your memory and ask you if it's possible that uh, this version is a as consistent as the version that you gave. And I'm reading now from Special Agents uh, Siebert and O'Neill's uh, report, which seems to me to be the most accurate record of, of what actually transpired, because they have times in it from time to time. And... Uh, in the, on the uh, third page of the report, uh, they say specifically uh, that 
Following the removal of the wrapping, it was ascertained that the president's clothing had been removed. It was also apparent that a tracheotomy had been performed as well as surgery of the head area, namely in the top of the skull. All personnel, with the exception of medical officers needed in the taking of photographs and x-rays, were requested to leave the auditory room and remain in an adjacent room. The implication is, and then he goes on to say, upon completion of x-rays and photographs, it was my understanding that uh, from the very beginning it was their intention to take a certain number of x-rays, uh, at least with the head and the neck and the chest, which probably represent the first series. And then he goes on to say, x-rays in the brain area, which were developed in return to the audience room, disclosed the path of the missile, which appeared to enter the back of the skull, and the path of the disintegrated fragments could be observed along the right side of the skull. Uh, the largest fragment. All the description then has to do uh, with the uh, examination of the skull. Now then, he goes on to say, during the latter stages of this audience, Dr. Hughes located an opening which appeared to be a bullet hole which was below the shoulders and two inches to the right of the middle line of the spinal column. This opening was probed by Dr. Hughes with the finger, at which time it was determined that the trajectory of the missile entering at this point had entered at a downward position of 45 to 60 degrees. Further probing determined that the distance traveled by this missile was a short distance inasmuch as the end of the opening could be felt with the finger. Inasmuch as no complete bullet of any size could be located in the brain area, likewise no bullet could be located in the back or any other area of the body as determined by total body x-rays, an inspection revealing there was no point of exit, the individuals performing the autopsy were at a loss to explain why they could find no bullets. And it was subsequent to that time that, that uh, I believe you took the post-evisceration uh, odysseys. Now, would, uh, is that, does it seem reasonable to you that an, uh, a pathologist would carry out an autopsy without looking at this nature, without looking at both the front and the back of the body? Well, I'm not questioning what My remembrance is that we were aware of the wound of the uh, entrance relatively early in the game. Well, that's what he says, and they pro and that Dr. Hume's probed it. No, 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 no
is it your impression, perhaps, and again, as Dr. Wett said, uh, 15-year-old memories uh, get clouded, if we assume that the information about the tracheostomy through a bullet hole was not available to the doctors that evening, but came later on, could there have been a tentative conclusion reached, or was there a tentative conclusion reached that evening that, in fact, um, the bullet entering the back region had dropped out, and that's why it wasn't present, and that explains the, the, um, the uh, autopsy and x-ray findings. I don't remember such conclusion being reached, but I was assuming it, I suppose it could have. This is Teddy again. May I make a comment, please, uh, in regard to the statement of the agent, Secret Service agent, FBI agent, which one? There are yeah. FBI agents, Francis O'Neill and James W. They're both in the same report. I see. Well, there's an inconsistency in this because they state right off that the everybody was requested to leave the time the photographs and the x-rays were taken. And yet, the photographs that we have show very clearly a, a wound in the upper right back if that's the way you refer to it. And if uh, that wasn't discovered until very late in the officer's procedure, there must have been a second exposure of film somewhere so as to illustrate that. Well, there, I'm sure that extra photographs were not taken all at the same time. There's no question about that. Because uh, some of the photographs were taken uh, after the organs were removed, some of them were taken after the skin has been turned back on the skull. That's perfectly true, but I, I, this uh, rendition bothers me. Well, there's uh, certain things we'll have to discuss in order to make a comment. But we'd like to get Dr. Ebersole's opinions on these before. Certainly, if we were aware of the wound, of the back wound, if you want to call it that, uh, very early in the autopsy. Now let's turn to a comment Ebersole made about one of the back x-rays that is particularly interesting given that his assertion on this point would not necessarily rule out a shot that went completely through the president, that is, through his back and then through his neck, a fundamental underpinning of the single bullet theory as we know. But Ebersole's testimony here begs the question as to whether there was either another shot that hit lower or that one shot to the back that did occur was simply so low that it would preclude a shot that possibly traversed through the neck. Again, the questioning by the panel was not thorough enough to truly understand the ramifications of this. In short, for history's sake, simply more confusion on this critical topic. But clearly, it seems that Ebersol's testimony is generally in support of the idea that the shot which did occur was simply too low to traverse through the neck. But clearly, it does seem that his testimony supports bullet fragments that were too low to line up with a shot that went through the neck. On film number eight, in the topmost portion of the film, lateral to the lower cervical spine, are some uh, 
radio opaque uh, material. Do you have an opinion as to what that material is, or have you looked at, noticed, or considered that before? In regular. Almost immediately lateral to the right lateral mass of C7 is a opacity that might represent metal. Far to the right of that, tiny pinpoint opacities are definitely artifacts. What I'm talking about here are these artifactual. This is the one that I'm describing. That may represent a metallic fragment. Dr. Ebersole is referring to a large, the larger, medialmost uh, radio opacity as being uh, yes. possibly a metallic fragment. Now let's pivot to the control of the autopsy. In short, Ebersol asserts that he was aware of no strictures on the autopsy protocol. That is, no restrictions on how the autopsy itself was conducted. But let's listen to what he had to say. This whole topic is really another mystery when it comes to the opposing recollections of Ebersol and Custer on just what happened at the autopsy. Ebersol does not even recall Dr. Berkeley being present that night a person Ebersol at the time himself knew. It was the president's personal physician, whom you will recall was one of the two individuals pointed out by Custer as controlling the medical actions taken during the autopsy. And Admiral Berkeley clearly was there, as documented by the Cybert and O'Neill inventory of those attending the autopsy that night, and in comments made by others. One more mystery, I think, in all of this. How could Ebersol have missed the presence of Admiral Berkeley? I guess it's possible, but it seems unlikely. It just gets to one of the core questions here regarding who is telling the truth and how much of the whole truth really came out in sworn testimony on this topic. Was it just too fantastic for him to tell the truth? Or was he really just unaware, as he states, well, let's listen to the details of this line of questioning. This is one that, as a juror, you will just have to make up your own mind on. Well, some question has been raised relative to um, the, pro the autopsy uh, personnel being aware of and perhaps concerned about the wishes of the family as to... Um, rapidity in which the autopsy would be done, and as to the extent of the autopsy. Was that an impression you had at the time of the autopsy, that there was any such consideration? I had no contact with the family, or did I mention the family? Did I hear the family mention that night? So as far as you, uh, when you say, well, I more would. specifically, more specifically, do you think in any way, shape, or form, uh, there was any... Um, specific consideration given to the wishes of the family uh, in the manner in which, in any manner in which the autopsy was conducted, both as to extent and as to rapidity of being performed. 
I, I'm aware of no no uh, such uh, uh, strictures on the uh, on the autopsy protocol. I'd like to be more specific. Did the president's personal position actually indicate any instructions to either Dr. Hume? Not that I heard, no. And, and you were there about 80 to 90 percent of the time, would yes. you say? You never heard him say that you ought to do this or you ought not to do that? No, sir. You didn't? No. Jim, are you referring to uh, Admiral Berkeley? I just yes. remember. Um, do you have a specific recollection of Admiral Berkeley being there? Do you know who Admiral uh, Berkeley yes, is? I have to admit, at this point, I don't recall his presence. One sec, Dr. Webb. No, I was just going to um, add, I think Dr. Gerbersold's answer makes it clear, but I, I just wanted to, to, to complete it as, as a corollary to Jim's question. Um, Dr. Gerbersold, you don't recall then, I assume from what you've already said, having heard any other admiral or general or secret service or FBI agent say uh, to any of the three autopsy physicians or to anybody else in the autopsy room that because of the request or instructions from the family or from anybody else that any particular procedure will or will not be done or that the autopsy will in any way be limited. Uh, is, is, that, is that what you said? That is correct. I'm, I was not aware of any limitations as to what we could do there. How many people were in the autopsy? We have to utilize a 15-year-old memory now. Well, yeah, but you know whether there were five or I suppose it was 15, depending on what time you were there. There was milling back and forth, Doctor, and I, as I have said to Mike on occasion, if we all had a chance to rehearse this, I'm sure we would have done it differently. But there were White House staff. I remember an Air Force Brigadier General there. Uh, there were men that we assumed to be Secret Service agents. And uh, depending on which slice of time you want to take, there may have been uh, six people there, or there may have been 11 or 12. Now, relative to the other discussion about um, perceived pressures, by the potential perceived pressures by the prosectors, mm -hmm. uh, we've all here been in the position in doing official autopsies where, for one reason or another, um, we are aware of uh, desires by family members, A, not to do an autopsy, or to do it rapidly, or to do it partially, and we've all been in that position as forensic pathologists. Uh, often this kind of uh, awareness can't be pinpointed to one person telling another person, but just a general behavior pattern, general ambience, uh, apart from, did anybody say anything to anybody? Is it your impression as a physician who was there, your role being different than Dr. Hughes and Dr. Fosra, uh, um, or Dr. Fink, that there was um, a perception, for whatever the reason, real or imaginary, on the part of anybody doing the autopsy, um, especially in what you raised about the adrenal glands in particular, and uh, other considerations about rapidity in which the examination will be done that haven't been raised here, uh, that there's any feeling from your impression on any of your, your four doctors' parts 
that um, any part of the body shouldn't be examined or it should be done quickly or it should be limited in, in any way, shape, or form. I am not, was not then aware of any, any such pressures. I'm aware that they can, they can occur in the course of an autopsy. The best, your recollection. The best of my recollection, there was no such pressure on us. I felt a little bit of personal pressure when the first x-rays did not show a bullet. And I was asked by the Secret Service agent to repeat. But uh, a little bit of pressure, certainly nothing, nothing overwhelming. Uh, I knew what he was after. But I, I didn't feel myself that repeating the x-rays would show the bullet, but we did it. Now, you repeated the x-rays specifically because what you were after was to find a bullet, bullet. because the, there was an entrance in the back and no exit. And at least no exit we could identify. Uh, apparent. Now let's turn to Ebersol's expertise. Ebersol readily admits that he had limited radiology experience with gunshot wounds. Over the course of his entire career, he had seen only 25 gunshot cases. He readily clarifies that while he was trained in radiology, his primary life's work was in radiation therapy. The operative word there is therapy, not diagnostic radiology procedures. Let's listen now to the details. Could I ask a question? Before you go on with this, uh, I, I, for the record, I'd like to, like to feel... Uh, I'd like to have a little better handle on what you feel that you're qualified to testify about based on those X-ray films and, and your expertise. In other words, I, uh, I don't want to pose questions to you. Well, I think it's your question. I am not, although I was trained in diagnostic radiology, I am not a diagnostic radiologist and have not been since... Uh, 1963, at which time I started doing radiation therapy and have been engaged in that full time since. And uh, now, this is not a reflection on, uh, on your experience or anything. I'd just like to know for the record uh, approximately how many gunshot cases uh, uh, you had occasion to examine the, the x rays of, and how many of them were in the you know, velocity range of this kind of a missile in, in these particular locations. This has to be a rough estimate, Doctor. I, I suppose in uh, in the field of radiology, I have had to read, uh, interpret x-rays during my residency and subsequent to that and perhaps 20 to 25 cases. Now, this ranges all the way from shotgun wounds to self-inflicted uh, revolver wounds, and so on. Uh, I couldn't say that any one of those 20 or 25 cases would be exactly the same as this one. That's 20 to 25 cases altogether? Altogether, in any location. Now, uh, all locations. Pardon me? All locations. All locations. All locations. All locations. Let me clarify this. Remember that at times I was outside the autopsy room for the purpose of getting these films, uh, and then on one occasion called the commanding officer's office to pick up these fragments sent from Dallas. So there could have been things that I would not be aware of, but I do specifically remember the kidney Thank you. Now let's turn to a topic that I alluded to in episode 78 and that I promised we would cover. You see, Ebersol was a reluctant witness in the HSCA's investigation. 
somehow rather miraculously stating that he wouldn't have much to add to the conversation. What an incredible statement made by one of the four men who, as doctors, were primarily involved in one of the most important autopsies ever performed in United States history, perhaps world history. This was a man, Ebersol, who was doing everything he could to downplay his involvement in and relevance to the autopsy and duck the controversy that he certainly knew was coming, the controversy that would come if he was forced to answer the tough questions to tell the truth under oath. So it was not until another controversy arose, the one over the origin of those lines drawn on those two x-ray films, it wasn't until that one became red hot, so much so that he finally decided to testify before the HSCA panel to dispel the rumors, rumors that those lines were really drawn by him during the autopsy to demonstrate possible paths of the bullet based on the results of those radiology films and his reading of them. Whether he was successful in dispelling these rumors or not will ultimately be left up to you as jurors. I have my own opinion on that topic. Let's listen to Dr. Ebersol now on this last little bit of testimony before we finish up and leave the world of x-rays and radiological exams and get on to the next episode to more of the ever-increasing mysteries that are present inside the autopsy. Local reporter, Lancaster reporter, contacted me. Truly, you're going to Washington, yes, came out. And uh, by and large, the questions asked were good ones, except the story uh, that I saw and have heard about carries such things as breaks 15-year vow of silence. Dr. Dr. Weck, I am half Irish. I can't hold my mouth shut for 15 minutes, let alone 15 years. I can say there was gross distortion in the stories. I did say... I did say, and I'm sure you read this, that I did not feel that my x-rays would change the basic findings of more. Is that correct? As a matter of fact, doctor, if I may, may enlarge on this, I was contacted by someone from this group several months ago, and I indicated I was not willing to cooperate as far as coming down here, but I would be glad to give a deposition in Lancaster because I felt I had little or nothing to add to what has already been known. However, I met Dr. a few months ago. He pointed out to me what to me was a very disconcerting thing, that there's been some speculation about pencil lines drawn on x-rays. I realized that those were the lines that I drew at the White House Annex. And I think that, more than any other reason, made me want to come here to clarify for you that those were not any attempts by any ballistics expert to uh, show passive bullets. I don't know what happened to those measurements, whether they were used for the sculpture or not. But that is how, in fact, they got on that lateral sculpture. Thank you for listening to episode 80 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.